Paul is uh, unpacking what it means to be a Christian, to live the life of faith, and his idea is, is that being a Christian changes everything. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel transforms lives. In view of God's mercy, we are to offer our bodies, renew our minds, love our neighbor and our enemy, all because of the gospel. The gospel is the gift given to all, all who are unworthy, and it is to change us. And it certainly changes the way we relate to the world around us, even to the government. Romans 13 is continuing a discussion of what it looks like to live this transformed, mercy-saturated life. Specifically, uh, 1 through 7, it's answering this question. If Jesus is Lord... What is my responsibility to Caesar? What is my responsibility to the civil magistrate, to the government? In that day, Caesar said he was Lord. So to believe the gospel that Christ is risen and is reigning was truly dangerous. We do not live in a setting like that now, and that's a good thing, but these verses lead to all sorts of questions for us. What is the role of government in my life? What should I do If I don't agree with a law, should Christians be revolutionaries? Should Christians support unjust governments? What about capital punishment and just war? These are all very difficult questions. And Romans 13 is one of the passages that many look to in the Bible on these topics. Pastorally, these verses are important too. Why? Because now is such a polarized and divided time. My uh, buddy Luke Evans said the following. I was reading a commentary this week published in the early 90s, and the writer was describing how polarizing the 1992 presidential election was. Now, that stands out to me because um, in 1992, I chose to... Now, some of you weren't even alive in 92, and I recognize that. But I chose in 1992 to kind of break from my identity of certain political leanings and inclinations to put a Ross Perot bumper sticker on the back of my uh, Datsun um, 310. Um, I thought I was, I was asserting my new identity, my new power as someone who's free to support whatever uh, government authority might be uh, come into power. And so that's what I did. I put on a bumper sticker of Ross Perot on my car. Now, that election ended up being between George Bush and Bill Clinton, and uh, the nation was divided. And uh, um, as I read this, I thought, that's nothing. Like, the writer had never been on Facebook in an election year. Everything seems to be about politics in our age. Everything is politicized. And we're caught up in it. And it's so easy to get caught up in our echo chambers where information we get really just serves as confirmation biases and isolates us in a world, um, a world where everyone agrees with us. This does not help us, by the way, to love the world, especially those in the world who disagree with our politics, our political enemies. Remember what we've said about knowing and loving, the difficulty that the more that we know, the more difficult it is to love. So we are in a time where we must show grace, 
show mind renewal in this particular sphere of life. So we're going to do this in four points this morning, and let's see what the Spirit has for us through the Word today. First, governing authorities are to be an expression of love. Notice from the text, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And he, or the government, is God's servant for your good. The authorities are ministers of God. Paul says all those things in this text. Now, don't miss this. The governing authorities are an extension of love. Paul is folding chapter 13 into chapter 12. How do we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God? How do we test and approve what God's will is? How do we love the community God has placed us in by loving the other? We do this faithful love by submitting to the government. The governing authorities are promoted, established to promote the good. They are a way to overcome evil with the good. They exist as one way to feed our enemy and our neighbor. They are also one way God will execute justice in our world. So when Paul says that vengeance belongs to the Lord at the end of chapter 12, one way is the authority that he gives to the government. This is why Calvin says, obedience to the government is one way to cherish peace and preserve the love of others. Governing authorities exist for love. Now, remember, Paul isn't writing to Americans nurtured by the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights. He isn't writing to the West influenced by the ideas of liberty and democracy. He isn't writing to a world that first understands themselves to be, like me in 1992, a sovereign individual. Paul is addressing Christians who were a powerless minority living under a Roman oligarchy, and as such is well aware that the state, what the state can do with such power. Paul's readers, the church of Jews and Gentiles, receiving this letter are also less hospitable than he was towards Roman rule. Remember, Paul is a citizen of Rome. He has status in Rome. But he's also a Jew. And Israel has regarded submission to a polytheistic nation like Rome as a fundamental violation of its status as God's people. Deuteronomy 17.15, Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. Now think about this for Paul how he is juxtaposed as a Jew with that understanding of its rulers and as a citizen of Rome. Now, after the fall of Israel's monarchy, they tolerated Persian and Egyptian rule. But in 168, they were swept into a revolt. And the success of the revolt reminded the Jews that it was possible to depose of outsiders who ruled over them. And in Paul's day, in the day of this writing, this letter to Rome, amidst the church, there was a movement of zealots who combined orthodox theology of the Pharisees with the militant nationalism of the Maccabees. And within 10 years of this letter, the zealots would revolt against Rome. Now that's all happening as Paul writes these words. And remember, this church was a church that would have members of it who might be refusing to pay taxes, who might have participated in revolts against Pilate, later against Caligula, 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 
Some were certainly banished from Rome, kicked out of the city by the emperor Claudius. They were all part of this church. And there was fear. There was, the air was full of political talk and was charged, no doubt, with animosity and varying views of how to respond to all that was going on. And Paul does not forget this. He also does not forget that Jesus died at the hands of a corrupt government. Paul was himself humiliated by a a Roman governor in Corinth. And there were various places in the Roman Empire where the governing authorities were openly hostile to the burgeoning Christian church. Paul has been beaten by these authorities. He has been jailed by these authorities. His life has been threatened by these authorities. He says in 2 Corinthians, I have been imprisoned numerous times with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I have had 40 lashes. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead. Now all of these didn't come from Rome, but sometimes they came from the authorities that the Romans set up. And into all of this, Paul says, the governing authorities exist for love. Now, yeah, it's the second point today. These governing authorities have authority from God. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority that which God has established. The authorities that exist have all been established by God. Now, Paul is attempting to place government rightly into God's economy. The responsibility of the government is to execute justice and for the citizens of said government to submit to their rule. He is telling them that this is part of living a life of love as a Christian. It's part of our discipleship. It's an act of offering your body as a a living sacrifice to God for worship. And it's quite stunning, isn't it? To this, Paul says, every one of you, every soul, literally, is to be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there's no authority except from God and those that have been instituted by God. If this is what Paul faced, all those things I mentioned, and the climate is a politically charged one, and Jews have been banished, and Christians are being ostracized and persecuted and beaten, how can Paul continue to call his church to submit? And he doesn't back down, right? In verse 3, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those that resist will incur judgment from God. Now, there's so much here that could be said and maybe so many questions that can be raised. But don't miss that Paul thinks this is to be incredibly important. And the stakes are related to God, not government, right? Submission to government is an extension, he says, of submission to God. If all authority is indeed from God, then the claims of God rest on governments and their subjects. Paul here draws on a family of words, all of which emphasize God-ordained order. God's goodness in creation makes civil order possible. It is an extension of his gift of grace. There's also the reality that sin is the one thing that makes civil order necessary. When civil authorities exercise their power for the good and for right, they faithfully represent the source of their authority and fulfill their duty to God. 
Now, Paul is clear that government doesn't need to be Christian to do this. They don't even need to exist on Christian principles to do this. What happens then when the government misuses its authority? When it uses its authority to work ill? Paul here says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, of course, Paul is not an idiot. He knew very well and personally that sometimes rulers are a terror to good conduct. He knew that he was stating the ideal, but that it does not go always go that way in practice. So that makes what he says here even more remarkable, right? We struggle with this in our culture today, but it's even more significant to say in the Roman Empire, who is the emperor when Paul wrote this letter? Most likely the emperor Nero. Widely regarded as one of the most impulsive, tyrannical, horrible men who ever led Rome. He murdered his own mother in AD 59. In AD 64, he instituted the first persecution of Christians and blamed them for the massive fire that spread in Rome that year. This is who Paul says to submit to. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 to honor the emperor who, when he knew, because Jesus told him, that he was going to be crucified by that very emperor. That is who Peter was to honor. So Paul calls the church to submit to the authorities because they know this, that in submitting, they are actually submitting to God. Now Paul talks about this in a variety of social relationships, and there's probably no word that gives us living as Westerners in the age of individualism more issues than that word submit. Even as we walk through the first little bit of this sermon, you might be bristling with that word. I know I do. I have this rebellious streak in me, this Marty McFly chicken thing, right? I don't want to submit, and I especially don't like to be told to submit. And that's why the context of Paul's day helps us. In Paul's day, a day before democracy and a bill of rights, a day where Christians had very little power to challenge any kind of divine decree, Paul's question is, given Rome's supremacy, what should be expected of Christians in response? And that is... Submit as an aim of love, as an aim of loving God and loving others, the call is to submit to the government authorities. Now, note, our submission is not slavish. It's not blind obedience without regard to the responsibility to love God and love others. Our eye is on our moral responsibility, grounded in the love of God and the love of neighbor and the love of enemy. But at the end of the day, the Christian knows or should know that all power comes from God. And when a Christian submits to the governing authorities, he reminds them, the government that is, that they are to be God's servants for the good. I mean, look to Jesus, right? Pilate says to Jesus in John 19.10, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? To which Jesus replies, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. So Pilate had authority in Christ's trial given to him by God. But if he decided wrongly, Pilate would have to answer to God for it. So we live a transformed life as the church by submitting to the God-ordained governing authorities in our lives. 
Now, we don't worship the government or make idols out of our civil authorities, but we do submit to them as good citizens. Now, what's the rationale here? There's a gospel rationale. We believe, as the church, that Jesus is risen from the dead. Today is Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. As the Spirit comes and lives in the life of the church and animates the church to do gospel work as a result of being changed by Jesus. We believe that the Spirit is the first fruits of resurrection, that Jesus will return and make all things new. We believe that even now Jesus is reigning, like we talked about last week at Ascension. He's reigning at God's right hand. That's the gospel. So because of that, we are liberated from an over-reliance or an over-trust in the civil authorities to take care of us, to meet our needs, etc. We know that God is in control no matter what, that he is good, and and we will reign with him in the new world. And so, the implication of that is we can submit to his appointed civil authorities now, even if they are evil, and enact wicked laws because our hope is not there, but in Jesus' resurrection and in Jesus' return. The governing authorities have authority given to them by God. Now, third point, those governing authorities have limited authority. It is derivative. It is limited. In The Lion King, the young cub and son of the king, Simba says, I thought being being a king meant you could do whatever you want. And his father, Mufasa, replies, I can't do it. I should try to do it, but I can't do it. There's more to being a king than that. There are occasions, friends, when the government must be obeyed. When it does good and punishes bad, when it executes justice, when it protects the victim and punishes the perpetrator, when it doesn't exceed the boundaries of its jurisdiction, when it rightfully bears the sword and punishes wrongdoing, when it's a terror to good conduct, when it isn't a terror to good conduct, when it isn't a license to bad conduct, like remember what Paul said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not ours. It's not yours. And the government is given limited authority from God to execute divinely ordered and righteous judgment. It is to promote the good as an extension from God. That is the ideal. And Paul knows this is never the case with any government in a fallen world filled with fallen people. It never meets the ideal. But it's still where he calls us to submit. But there are occasions when the government should not be obeyed. Indeed, it must not be obeyed. What might those occasions be? Now, when the government requires disobedience to God, we must disobey the government. This is civil disobedience. Now, the American church has just gone through a season where we're wrestling with questions about meeting together and masks and vaccines, opening and closing, essential workers. There have been acts of injustice performed by the governing authorities on black bodies. There have been many other acts of injustices. And we've had to talk about resistance and civil disobedience. So this question is obviously pertinent for us. Frequently, what we Americans think merits Civil disobedience doesn't really merit civil disobedience. You disagreeing with a policy on economy or taxation or foreign affairs doesn't give you the right to civil disobedience. What does? 
when the government uses the power of the sword in an effort to coerce your violation of God's laws. In Daniel 3, we get an example of this. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded to disobey God, you are commanded to fall down and worship the golden image of King Neb- that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobey. That's an example of the the governing authorities using coercion and the power of the sword to force violation of God's law. Martin Niemöller, who was a German minister during World War II, who was told to cease meeting and preaching the gospel, he disobeyed rightly and was imprisoned for it. We are told that another minister visited him in jail and argued that he would be set free if he would only agree to keep silence about the gospel being for Jews as well. The other minister concluded by asking him, so why are, why are you in jail? And Niemöller countered, why aren't you not in jail? You see, when a state wholly perverts the ideal by promoting evil and persecuting the good, it can cease being God's servant. A few years ago, we were uh, in the book of Revelation, and John's vision includes a vision of the governing authorities. The government that punishes good and rewards evil. The government that persecutes and kills. This government, John, aligns with the beast in Revelation. And when the church colludes with such governments, they become, according to John in his vision, the false prophet. Remember, Revelation isn't just speaking of some one-time future event, but is giving a proper view of what is happening in the now of human history how there are antichrists of all forms and shapes, and how governments get led astray by the antichrist and then persecute the church. They use the power of the sword to coerce a violation of God's law, and they use the power of the sword as a threat to worshiping God. These are the times. There are times in these moments when the church is seduced by that power and colludes with the government and fails to do good and overlooks evil. Now, don't miss this. When the church does this, they are a false prophet and they are promoting the evil instead of the good. Now, let me add a note here because we're in a time that this extends in all different versions of authority. Right In the church, right now, there are lots of abuses of authority that are happening. If you know anything about what's going on in the Southern Baptist Church and the report that was issued two weeks ago, like, If you know anything about what's happening in the Roman Catholic Church over the last 40 years and beyond, like there is lots of examples of where even the church misuses its authority, where the courts of the church pervert justice and don't do good. Obedience to God in such circumstances means resistance and not submission. It means civil disobedience. When disciples, the disciples refused to obey the Sanhedrin and their command to stop preaching the gospel in Acts, they respond, we must obey God rather than men. John Stott says, whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. Now, resistance can take many forms, such as economic boycotts, disseminating the truth about an evil regime, engaging in peaceful protest, It can even be armed revolution. Normally, I would say that violence and revolution are always left off the table, and yet 
While I do not have absolute clarity in my own mind on the matter personally, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer's involvement in the plot to assassinate Hitler was probably the right thing to do. Though I'd want to stress that such an action would be clearly exceptional and can be justified only by achieving a greater good of loving uh, enemy and other and neighbor and honoring God than could, could otherwise be achieved by resisting entirely through passive means. That's a dangerous thing to ponder. Violence and warfare can be too easily justified in some minds. And sometimes more war is the morally responsible thing to do when grave peril approaches not only the church, but an entire civilization. Sometimes our consciences demand us in those moments to resist and disobey. This is what Paul is saying in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. One commentator says it like this. It is significant that Paul has brought out in this connection the positive character of obedience. Don't miss that. Because such a point of view at the same time implies the limits of that obedience. If obedience is a matter of conscience, then it is no longer servile. When conscience is introduced as a motive of obedience, the latter can no longer be counted on. It becomes possible to object to authority on the grounds of conscience. So when should we resist and disobey? When the government uses the power of the sword in an effort to coerce your violation of God's law, you must resist and disobey. Now, there are other things that fall back on the conscious and our wisdom. And I think in all of that, just a couple of points. Remember our tendency. Remember our tendency to want to rebel and not submit. Remember the story of individualism that per- permeates the air, and water, the air we breathe and the water we drink. Like, we think revolution is always the answer, and it's not. Remember our tendency. Remember Paul's situation and the situation of the persecuted church worldwide. Remember your context, in other words, in the context of history and in the context of the church worldwide. And remember that government is for the love of and good of the other. And there's some examples of that even for us as we've worked through this in our time as a church, in the meeting for worship, when maybe we were discouraged to do so, in the singing of songs for worship, when when we were told not to do so. This has, like, feet on the ground for us. We've experienced just a small, small bit of this. I marched in protest on the streets of Albuquerque to what our civil authorities were doing to black and brown bodies. Why did I do that? For this very reason to resist, because I felt like it was my God-ordained necessity to do so. There are times for that. There are limits to the government's authority. Paul thus approached the relation of the church and state, not as a Sadducee who lived from the advantages of the state as an elite, nor as a zealot, a revolutionary who was there to overthrow the state, nor as a Pharisee, hear this church, Paul did not live as a Pharisee who divorced religion from the state, 
nor as a Roman citizen for whom the state was an end of itself. Paul wrote as a free man in Jesus. And he appeals then to the church to be equally free in obedience to the state, but not conformed to it. And this leads to our last point. The governing authorities should be respected and honored. Verses 6 and 7. The clear application of the passage is that the Christian life is one in which government authorities should be obeyed and respected in almost all cases. It seems that this means at least four big things for us. First, we grant respect to those in authority. This simply means that we are not only to comply with civil authorities, but to do so in a way that shows them respect, honor, and courtesy. Let's go Brandon is not to be something on our lips, church. It's not. And any other vice versa against any other political party, entity, or person. We are to treat parents, ministers, civil magistrates with deference and respect. Even when the individuals in these positions are not worthy of much respect, we show respect to the authority structure that stands under and behind them. That means we give respect whether they represent my views or not. We pray for the president and all leaders, whether left, right, or middle. That is a way we give respect. Second, we should calm our views of the government. Christians should not get hysterical and fearful over the actions of civil magistrates who don't represent their views. Why? Because when God allows pagans to be in power, he does not forget justice. In Jeremiah 27, 7, all nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land to come. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. So there's not to be the angry hostility for the church that comes from the anxiety that we feel in the moment. And right now, many of you, including myself, feel that anxiety. And the temptation in the midst of that anxiety is to respond, to get puffed up, and to be angry. And to then not show respect, to not pray, to side up. Remember, God and his ways cannot be stopped. And that the leaders that God appoints are God's servants. And they themselves cannot thwart God's plan. Even their unbelief and violence plays into God's hand. And we aren't trusting in the state. We are trusting in God. And no, because John in his vision of Revelation gives that whole point of how the church can be led astray. It is a temptation for us in our anxiety and fear, to be led astray and to align with a government that acts against Christ and his purposes. You do not have to look far into history to see this happening to Christ's church. We aren't trusting in the state. We are trusting in God so we can be calm and reasonably respectful. Third, our aim with our participation in the government is love. The practical duties of taxes, revenue, respect, and honor have the aim of love. You and I can be involved in governmental affairs because we desire to love 
neighbor. If you are getting into government affairs to achieve power for your side, tribe, or position, that is against God's ways. The aim of government is not for tribe, side, or persuasion. It is for love for all people. And that's why God calls people into that position for love. For Jews, census enrollments and taxation were two of the most onerous effects of foreign rule over them. In Roman-occupied Palestine, where tax collectors unscrupulously overcharged Jews, the population was tempted to underpay or withhold taxes without compunction. Bitterness over taxes was not confined to Palestine, however. The Roman uh, historian Tactitus reports mounting unrest over taxes in Rome in AD 58, one year after Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome. But Paul does not lend his voice to this protest. The payment of taxes in Paul's mind is an expression of agape. For the authorities are God's servants to execute love. Fourth, our respect is qualified. I mean this in the sense that we know that the civil authority is a servant of God and given his or her power by God, so we honor them, but we do not fawn over them. This means that we should be wary of extreme ideological views and the roles of government both on the right and the left because they are almost always unqualified in their love for one side and hatred for the other. And you and I are being made a pawn in our current environment towards the powers of the day on either side. Paul says, give everyone what you owe him, including taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. This is a clear echo of Jesus' famous saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. Paul clearly has this in mind. Jesus is saying that the civil magistrate has a limited sphere of authority. Jesus was undercutting a common conception of the state in his era, namely that the king or emperor was a deity in the pantheon of gods or so closely aligned with the God of the region that the state had divine authority. Jesus, however, says yes to paying Caesar taxes, but no to paying Caesar worship. That is a no to unqualified obedience. Jesus' statement went very deeply into the consciousness of the early church. Not only does Paul echo uh, echo it here in Romans 13.7, Peter does the same in 1 Peter 2.17. Christians got into a great deal of trouble in the Roman Empire when people realized that they had an authority higher than the empire, emperor, by which they could judge both him and the civic authorities. Christians have gotten into trouble in most eras for the same reason. We are to give proper respect to the government as a limited authority. They are not divine. Politics are not divine. It is not a reason to separate from a church or a family. Philip Yancey in 1993 in a... Christianity Today article called Why Bill Clinton is Not the Antichrist. This was a response to the crazy vitriol from Christians about how terrible Clinton was. He got hundreds of mean emails about that from Christians, and Clinton heard about it. As he spoke with Bill and Hillary, uh, Yancey, as he spoke with Bill and Hillary, started speaking about the amount of damage, um, especially Hillary had received from Christians and how hurtful it was. Out of that meeting, Hillary got invited to a Capitol Hill Bible study for people of all political persuasions. Now, she was very hesitant to go. But when she walked in, several Christian women came to her and said, I'm so sorry for the way you have been treated. 
Later, Hillary wrote, I was ready for anything except an apology. Their showing of grace was a blessing I had not seen before. Friends, we, because of the grace we have received, because it's a gift, because it's incongruent, because we were enemies and God met us when we were enemies and gave us grace. No matter who you might think your enemy in the government is, you can be gracious just like this. And if you can't be, the question is, how much of the Lord's grace has touched you? Because that's what the gospel does. And so we have reason, friends, to be hopeful and optimistic because what the gospel does to us as the church is makes us calm and respectful of those in governing authorities and understanding the scope of their authority. So we submit to them because we're submitting to God, but also the limited scope of that authority. And when it calls us to disobey under the threat of coercion or the power of the sword, to disobey God, we can rightly stand up to said government. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us. Yeah, we just, we just need your help. Father, I, I confess I have spoken ill of various governing authorities. Even as I pump up gas at the pump, it's very easy for me to not show respect or deference. It's very easy for me not to regularly pray. So I pray that you would remind us even this morning of the call of the church to be a different kind of community in the world, to be a city within a city, a city that's been touched by Jesus. Remind us that we're citizens of that city, even while we occupy this city. And as such, that changes us. It changes us how we relate to this city. Because we know that our city is set in heaven and a foundation that can never be shaken or destroyed. So we ask in the midst of all the things we feel and the fears and anxieties we feel in our present moment, set us right in the context of history, in the context of a church persecuted in places in the world where they can't even meet publicly like we're doing today. Remind us of that today, God, as we submit to our governing authorities. Help us to do it faithfully with respect because as such we're submitting to you. Animate us by your Holy Spirit to do this work. We need your spirit to help us discern, to walk this path, to speak to our consciousness and reframe our consciousness according to the word of God and that our ethic is one of Jesus, that we have not come to be served but to serve. So help us to help the spirit to animate that ethic in us, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.